Welcome to episode two about a controversial clean energy project in Maine being battled out in courts today. And the three larger themes from this story regarding the complexity of our overall renewable energy transition. Now today we're tackling the theme of the growing conflict between environmental activists and clean energy activists, how it showed up here in Maine and what it means for other similar initiatives happening all over the country. There's a stretch towards the end where we're cutting through forest that hasn't been cut through before over public land. And that poses a problem and we should have you know, foresters and scientists look at those environmental costs and weigh them. But I just, I would be very surprised if you, in weighing those costs, that they would somehow surpass the benefit of providing clean energy to New England, to the New England grid through the project. In the case of the CMP corridor, there are no benefits because this energy is all being used right now. And it's just shifting energy from one customer to another. And so we get a huge fragmenting project through uh, a highly connected um, and intact, uh, globally significant piece of habitat in Western Maine. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Welcome back to episode two of our series covering a renewable energy project in Maine that got approved by state and federal regulators only to be shut down by Mainers in a public referendum. In this series, we're pulling out three critical themes that are impacting our renewable energy transition more broadly. And in today's episode, we're going to dive into theme number one. Now, if you didn't check out episode one yet, Well, please make sure to do so as it provides an outline and timeline of what happened here in Maine that serves as a critical foundation for these next few discussions. In this episode, we're talking about the conflict that's starting to play out in many places between environmental advocates and clean energy advocates. Well, wait, aren't those, uh, you know, the same thing? One would think. And yes, they are on the same larger team. Both sides want to see this planet saved and care deeply about all the life on it. However, there are increasingly differing views in how we get there, particularly in how we transition all fossil fuels and what environmental trade-offs are worth taking, since every energy source, including renewables, has their share of environmental trade-offs. We're going to examine how this conflict showed up in Maine's story, and along the way, provide a more in-depth breakdown of the two environmental claims against this renewable energy project. The first being the impact of large hydropower dams, and two, the impact of the new transmission corridor to be cut through Maine's northern forest. If you did not listen to episode one and don't care to, well, here's a recap of the story. A project known as the New England Clean Energy Connect was underway and in 2020 got state and federal approval and then got shut down in a public referendum last year. And it's now being decided ultimately in court. The reason this was shut down in Maine, despite it being a commercial agreement between a hydropower company in Canada and the state of Massachusetts, was because it required running a transmission line through Maine to get there, which included 53 miles of a new corridor to be cut and built through Maine's northern forest. Ultimately, for a number of different reasons, 60% of Mainers voted yes on the referendum to stop the project. Now, throughout this series, 
you're going to hear from folks involved on both sides, those who support it and those who stand against it. No shape or form do I want to tell you who is right or wrong. I don't have that conclusion firmly for myself, let alone pushing that out on listeners. The courts in Maine will decide, and you can decide for yourself if you want. But the goal of this series is to use the story in Maine as a lens into three broader critical issues playing out all over the country. So in this episode, again, the issue will be the conflict that's brewing between environmental advocates and clean energy advocates, given not only do renewables have their own environmental footprint, but the transmission and storage infrastructure needed to get them to scale is being hotly contested all over the country and the world, for that matter, on the grounds of environmental protection. There are good people and valid claims made on both sides of this debate. There are also certain biases and preconceived notions playing out on both sides as well. The best way to address them is to talk about them out loud. And talk out loud we shall, right after this short break. If you are not already subscribed to the Animalia newsletter, well, please do. It's completely free, and every week or two, you'll get a breakdown of a critical topic or issue in the world of climate action and conservation, as well as a handful of news articles worth exploring. In one of our recent newsletters, for example, we broke down why gas prices are rising and why it has nothing to do with the renewable energy transition or green policy, which even Joe Biden himself does not seem to understand. We also recently detailed how economically valuable beavers are to their natural ecosystems, and you'd be shocked by the numbers. Anyhow, subscribe in the show notes. Again, it's totally free. Okay, now back to episode two of the series. There are two existential crises we're fighting against, climate change, global warming, and biodiversity collapse. To address climate change, we need to significantly reduce emissions, and transitioning off fossil fuels as fast as possible is perhaps the best way to do this. To address the biodiversity collapse, we need to protect and restore our natural ecosystems, and to try and shift away from the two largest drivers of loss and pollution of these ecosystems, mining and industrialized monoagriculture. Climate change and global warming get a bit more press and social coverage and have a pretty clean framework to operate under in terms of keeping global temperature gains ideally below 1.5 degrees Celsius, but at most below two degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. We sit at roughly 1.1 today. Biodiversity collapse has a fraction of the median social coverage and is still trying to figure out a common singular framework to measure goals against, since there are so many complexities to nature. These two threats form their own vicious cycles where they feed each other in a negative way. They are forever intertwined, but are often not provided equal weight. At Animalia, we aim to always equally prioritize both and balance our coverage of both as best we can. That approach, however, can create some real internal conflicts, as you'll see play out in Maine as we get into this episode. Now, for many people, they lean one way or the other based on personal passion. Being drawn more to lower emissions or being drawn more towards protecting our remaining natural ecosystems. They're both really important. They're both part of the larger goal of saving this planet. Anyone who leans either way and has committed their work and lives to that cause should be commended. All that said, there's a conflict brewing. A little tussle at times inside the hashtag Team Earth family. You see, most environmental activists in this country, and I should specify most non-Indigenous environmental activists in this country, believe that the key to protecting the environment is to more or less get the hell out of its way and stop extracting resources from it. Who can blame them? 
I've personally felt that way for a long time in my life. And in many cases, I still do. You see, most environmental activists, especially Western environmental activists, believe the key to protecting the environment is to more or less get the hell out of its way and stop extracting resources from it. Who can blame them? I've personally felt that way for a long time in my life and in many cases today still do. On the other end, clean energy advocates recognize that key minerals such as cobalt, nickel, and copper are essential to building batteries and making more and more things electric to get off of oil and gas. They also see the need to build more transmission infrastructure, which we discussed in more depth in episode one. There are environmental downsides of all clean renewable energy. Solar requires lots of land and raw materials to produce the panels. Wind energy is also land intensive and offshore wind can impact marine life ecosystems. Nuclear produces waste. We still don't know how to fully get rid of long-term. And in this episode, we're gonna learn about some of the drawbacks of hydropower. What we need is for the local environmental protectors to work closely alongside those mining for minerals for building transmission lines. What we ideally need is for local environmental protectors to work closely alongside those mining for minerals or building transmission lines to identify together the full costs and benefits and make weighted decisions without any preconceived notions going in. Easier said than done. That, however, does not happen often enough, especially on the public social stage. The result is an increasingly apocalyptic narrative on all things climate and the environment, which pulls these two sides further apart. Here's Anthony Maffa, an environmental lawyer and professor at the University of Maine. It stems from a problem in the environmental movement that reaches back to its origins with a, that is essentially embodied by a lot of apocalyptic language, uh, a lot of discussion of crises, imminent crises, uh, as kind of some of the core of communication around these environmental issues for, for decades before, not just climate change, right? And when that's your starting point, right, it doesn't really foster a positive conversation about opportunities and a better life for everyone it 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 fosters panic and okay what am i going to have to give up to avoid losing everything um and it's a narrative that is a problem for policymakers i mean if you listen to politicians talk about climate change they'll do more of what you're saying than you even realize uh, you know, a calculated, well-written speech about climate change uses language like opportunity, everyone will breathe, breathe cleaner air, jobs will be created, the economy will grow. I mean, the, politicians stress these things all the time. Part of the problem in the 21st century, in my opinion, is that the news media doesn't really care about that narrative, right? The much, the narrative that that gets eyeballs and ears is the narrative that the world is burning and you're going to lose everything. Um, and that is it's more shock exactly. value. What? It's more shock value. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's, it's news media has all, all become reality television, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and the result of that is a policy environment that is speaks in those same terms. And that's just not really that like you're suggesting, it's, it's, not, it's not energizing, it's depressing. Now, it's easy to feel some sympathy for both groups. 
we absolutely need to protect our remaining natural ecosystems as we are staring at a sixth mass extinction right in the face. We also need to curb emissions as soon as possible or this planet will continue to heat up, oceans will keep rising and storms and droughts will keep intensifying. What we have to do then is carefully evaluate each potential project for mining or building key renewable infrastructure against its environmental trade-offs. We have to be willing to accept that sometimes an opportunity that can support clean energy should not move forward because those environmental trade-offs are too high. Likewise, we have to be willing to accept that sometimes environmental trade-offs are going to have to be accepted in order to move forward with a clean energy project. That standoff was very much the core of the NECEC. So let's illustrate this first via another example that's happening in Minnesota. In Minnesota, there's a controversy over the copper, nickel, and cobalt sitting under the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Now, these are three of the most essential resources for electric batteries, be them for cars or grid storage centers. This also happens to be the most visited wilderness area in the United States. State legislature is very conflicted as well in Minnesota. There's a strong push from some to open up mining with extremely strict environmental protocols on how it's executed because those minerals are so essential for what's needed in the current state of renewable technology, particularly, again, batteries. They also point to the local jobs that would be created for mining as well. Others stand strongly against it, wanting to shield the boundary waters from mining, no matter how valuable those resources are for advancing clean energy. They cite that there are other places to find those minerals. Betty McCollum, a state legislator, recently sponsored a bill to protect 250,000 acres of boundary waters over concern that with mining comes toxic drainage water that would upend the ecosystem. Supporters also cite that further protections for boundary waters could add upwards of 4,600 jobs of its own due to tourism and its value to local businesses. So who is right and who is wrong? Not so easy to say, huh? It's easy to understand and empathize with the needs and passions on both sides. And it really has nothing to do with politics. There are Democrats and Republicans on both sides of the issue in Minnesota, just as there are in Maine. Here we have our dilemma. We need to get off fossil fuels as quick as possible without raising energy costs on everyday folks. We also need to protect what little of our natural ecosystems we still have left, as we are seeing an unprecedented collapse in biodiversity. Yet some of the solutions to both are a bit at odds with each other because every single form of renewable energy at scale has environmental trade-offs. So projects need to be evaluated case by case and analyzing the trade-offs against the costs. For now, in the state of Minnesota, the decision has been the environmental costs are too steep and we're gonna have to find our clean energy minerals elsewhere. In Maine, the NECEC project is now being decided in the courts, but make no mistake that many folks on both sides see this conflict. They just have opposing viewpoints on where the math lands. Here again is Ben Dudley, who is a supporter of the NECEC. I, I want to start out by saying that I think these questions about environmental impacts are absolutely valid and essential. Uh, I agree. Um, and that, that needs to be sort of part of the starting place where you look at and review a project like this. Um, and uh, you know, what, what has informed me the most is the report coming from the Maine Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, they spent 29 months in review of this project, uh, during which they, they were interveners representing all sides who had every opportunity to participate in the process and offer uh, expert testimony. They took, uh, on several, more than one occasion, they took uh, public comment. 
uh, it was an exhaustive process and the report it, it reflects it it's an exhaustive report that includes in the words of the dep and i hope i captured this right an, an unprecedented degree of environmental protection uh, for transmission line construction in the state of maine that's the way the dep described the, the conditions they placed on the permit that they ultimately approved. And from the side of those opposing the project, here's Nick Bennett, again with a similar message acknowledging that impact versus benefits need to be always weighed. But in the case of the NECC, since Nick believes that the project overall does not provide net new renewable energy, since he thinks Hydro-Quebec is simply diverting existing hydropower from one buyer to another, well, for him, the costs clearly outweigh the benefits. You know, with with renewable power projects like solar farms or or wind farms, there's an issue of you know, do you weigh how how you weigh the benefits of increased renewable generation versus whatever impacts there may be on the surrounding area? Here, there's no increase in renewable power generation. All of this was to send existing electrons that are going elsewhere now to Massachusetts instead, because Massachusetts was willing to pay Hydro-Quebec more for them. And we were supposed to take a huge environmental hit for that. And, you know, CMP pretty quickly realized that if it didn't put up uh, an argument that this was somehow going to be good for climate change, that they would have nothing to stand on. So they fabricated this whole, um, whole thing about how this would be really beneficial because it would reduce greenhouse gas emissions in New England. So what are the environmental costs of this project? And why did so many environmentalists stand up against it? Is there merit in their claims or are the environmental costs fairly minimal? Well, part of that answer depends on who you ask. So we asked everyone, including some of our own chats with experts outside of those interviewed for this project. So let's bucket these discussions into two topics. Number one is the environmental cost of hydropower and Hydro-Quebec's dams and reservoirs in particular. Number two, the environmental costs of the new transmission corridor that needs to be cut through the forest in northern Maine. Hydropower in all forms has environmental and social trade-offs. Again, so do solar, wind, geothermal, and nuclear. But right now, we're talking hydro. Even those who oppose the project on the grounds of environmental costs acknowledge the trade-offs for all renewable energy. Here's Sandra Howard, who led the grassroots coalition against the NECC called Mainers for Local Power. So you're right. There are trade-offs for every kind of source of energy. I think Mainers tend to talk about um, microgrids, um, domestic-based power, rooftop solar, run-of-river hydro. So in Maine, there is a statute that says you can't generate hydropower more than, I think, 100 megawatts. You'll have to check that number. But the kind of hydro that um, Maine's governor approved to come through with NECEC is 1200 megawatts, which isn't even legal in Maine. And so it's interesting that, um, you know, that these kind of impounds would not be allowable in the state of Maine under current guidelines. What she is citing in terms of Maine's policy is that within the state, they don't permit the same type of large scale hydro dams that are used by Hydro-Quebec in Canada, Instead, they only allow run-of-river hydro. So let's provide some background on hydropower and the two main forms of it. 
To help understand hydro in simple terms, it's basically the practice of using water flow to spin a turbine, which then in turn spins a generator that creates electricity. The fuel in this case used to provide the electricity is water, which is more naturally replenished and able to be reused in ways other fuels like coal and natural gas are not. Now, there are two primary types of hydropower facilities, storage hydropower and run of river hydro. Run of river hydro leans on the natural flow of a river to move the turbines with really no storage infrastructure needed. In this way, it has a smaller overall environmental footprint compared to storage hydropower. However, it can still be disruptive to river flows. It does not produce as much volume of electricity as storage hydro and is more volatile depending on the season and strength of the river flow. With storage hydropower, large dams are used to essentially siphon off water from natural bodies into a reservoir. They are also ideally built at points of changes in elevation, since elevation drops can create additional power of water flow, which generates more electricity. Storing the water allows for more control to keep the electricity output fairly constant. At times of peak natural flow, such as in the spring, a hydro dam relies less on stored water to spin the generator. When natural flow is low, stored water is pumped through a pipe known as a penstock to keep electricity flowing. In the case of Hydro-Quebec, they are using big dams and reservoirs primarily to generate their hydropower. Given their location in Quebec, they have a lot of water resources to tap into. And given their location in Quebec, they have a lot of water resources to tap into. Here's Lynn from Hydro-Quebec. So first, um, I mean, a lot of folks that don't know Hydro-Quebec don't know Quebec either. and um, and one of the fundamental reasons that were Hydro Quebec is 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 exists and um, uses its energy for uh, local demand and for um, its neighbors is because we're privileged, blessed with vast uh, water resources. So um, the province is about a fifth of the United States, um, and as I said, we have lots of water resources, and also geographically, about 80% of our population lives close to the Canada-US border. And most of our uh, water resources are located uh, in the more Northern territories. And um, these are the numbers. Um, I'd like to say that we've counted everyone. We probably haven't, but approximately 500,000 lakes, 4,500 rivers, of which we use 75. Um, for hydroelectric generation, and um, over a fifth of the territory is uh, covered in water. So what are the environmental and social downsides of mega dams? Hydropower is quite controversial for good reason. Now, on one hand, large hydro dams can produce a steady, reliable source of energy that is cleaner from an emission standpoint than their fossil fuel alternatives. Now, on the other hand, they can severely disrupt up and downstream flows leading to a cascading ecological damages. They can flood shallow waters. They can disorient and disrupt the feeding and reproduction cycles for fish. Historically, many dams around the world also infringe on the livelihoods of local communities. And while hydropower from larger storage facilities check out pretty well on carbon emissions, well, they are capable of releasing quite a bit of methane. In fact, a 2017 study from Bioscience showed that dams can emit more methane than biomass and industrialized rice plantations. Methane is a big problem, as we discussed in episode one, because it traps more heat than fellow greenhouse gas carbon. 
Methane release from hydrodams comes in the form of a few different processes, such as degassing, bubbling, and diffusion. Let's illustrate an example. When you siphon off a large volume of water, sediment gets trapped and can start to build up. Microbes then feast on the sediment and release methane. There's also issues such as rotting vegetation, methane bubbling up from soil erosion, and all these contribute to overall methane release. Now, no two dams are exactly alike. The greenhouse gas emissions produced from hydropower very much depends on things like location, water temperature, elevation, and life stage of the facility. Dams at higher elevations, for example, release less carbon dioxide since they can leverage more natural power. In the Amazon, lowland dams produce 350% more carbon emissions than upland dams per megawatt hour of electricity. Which brings us to another key point of differentiation, cold water versus warm water dams. Brazil as a country actually gets 75% of its electricity from hydropower, which is a bit of a problem considering dams in warmer conditions release a lot more methane than colder conditions such as Quebec. This is due in part because it's harder for those methane releasing hungry microbes to survive in colder temperatures. The life stage also makes a big difference. Large dams release less methane over time. Some damage, such as rotting vegetation, is more front-loaded, but also there are other dynamics, such as natural thermocline that develops in reservoirs over time that essentially blocks methane from bubbling up. Here's Lynn again, providing the explanation from Hydro-Quebec's end. Uh, Hydro-Quebec has conducted extensive research um, on our GHG emissions, and we're actually the one place in the world that has the most data on Greece, greenhouse gas emissions from a hydropower reservoir. Um, and so we, it's very well documented and we, we, with technology, we've actually improved um, the way data is collected and studied. Um, and we don't only study the GHG emissions of a reservoir, also the processes that generate them. Um, and that's part of our strength. So what happens when a reservoir is impounded once the reservoir is flooded, organic matter um, leaves a ground cover no longer photosynthesize and they begin to decompose. So that's when carbon is released into the atmosphere. So during the first few years, there is a rise in emissions. So decomposing organic matter, um, which produces primarily carbon dioxide, a little bit of methane, although in our cold temperatures, um, methane is not a, a big component. It's a very small component of our emissions. And so the results of nearly 30 years of research show that GHG emissions increase after impoundment. They reach their peak two to four years after the reservoir has been filled. Okay. And then over the next 10 to 15 years, the phenomenon subsides and GHG emissions return to levels comparable to those of natural rivers and lakes. And we know this because our studies have measured, taken data in um, rivers and lakes in surrounding areas where there, where there are no facilities and compared them with the ones with our facilities. So the result is a carbon footprint of electricity distributed in Quebec uh, to be 34.5 grams of CO2 equivalents per kilowatt hour. So in a nutshell, uh, Quebec hydropower stands among the lowest GHG emitting energy resources for two reasons. I mentioned the cold temperatures. So cold water contains more dissolved oxygen and that makes a big difference in the formation of greenhouse gases. And two, our facilities are built in remote locations, far from um, agricultural or urban areas 
where vegetation is sparse. And that means low organic matter in the water, therefore less productive ecosystems. A lot of Lynn's explanation centers around greenhouse gas emissions. And this is probably because, well, that was the focal point of the state and federal analyses of the project. However, one of the criticisms of this process from the opposition was that the main Department of Energy, which to be clear, has their own permit that was issued for this project under appeal. However, one of the criticisms of this process from opposition was that the main Department of Energy, which you know their own permit that they issued is for this project is also under appeal and being evaluated in court. Well, that DEP did not run a comprehensive enough study on the full environmental costs of these dams. One of the challenges with the overall process here is again, that the primary analysis on climate and environmental impacts for this project was done by US state and federal agencies. They are going to, of course, be analyzing the US specific factors primarily along with those global carbon emissions. Now, those dams from Hydro-Quebec are in Canada. The entire life cycle analysis of Hydro-Quebec's hydropower was said to have been factored into the recommendation from the main DEP and put forward to them in transparency. However, scientists have historically cited that hydropower energy and its environmental impact in totality is not nearly as studied globally as it should be. We're kind of playing catch up there from a historical standpoint. So we have hydro dams in Canada on a renewable energy project being decided in the US. This is why in my conversations with a wide variety of folks actually on the project supporting end, the conversation on the analysis of the dams weighted heavier towards the greenhouse gas emissions, carbon in particular, and not nearly as much as the other environmental trade-offs. Now, one of the most outspoken folks I interviewed against mega dams overall was Becky Bartovics from the Sierra Club. It's important to first and foremost understand Sierra Club's mission as a staunch protector of the natural environment and desire to minimize human interference and use of our remaining natural ecosystems. I really resonate, honestly, with Becky's passion for protecting our natural world and sometimes find myself internally conflicted with this very topic of this episode, knowing we also need large-scale renewable generation. The first thing that Becky shared with me when we spoke was her particular passion for this issue around protecting water. I am, uh, you know, I, I have a visceral reaction to damaging water. Um, it's, it's, it's not a rational reaction or it's not, I mean, it's rational because all beings are wa largely water. I became increasingly aware of the mega dam damage, um, the damage that they cause uh, to the boreal forest. And then as we went into it, um, the impact to the indigenous peoples and the local people who live there and have always uh, provided for themselves. And when the dams, you know, so that's, you know, that, that was another part of our reaction. And I do not remember how quickly I became aware of it, but I have known other people over time who were, you know, concerned about dams in, you know, Peru and, you know, in South America and also in China. So, you know, there are these enormous dams, um, you know, have been an environmental nightmare for a long time. Now, Becky is correct that another cost of large dams have been in the form of social costs, particularly to indigenous communities and other local communities whose livelihoods very much depend on the water sources that dams are built on. In fact, earlier this year, the Inu First Nations people 
successfully retained legal rights of personhood for the Magpie River in Canada. Part of those rights include the river's rights to maintain its natural flow. Well, we're going to have to see how this particular story plays out. But it was a major development and a reminder that large-scale hydro dams have had negative impacts on indigenous communities around the world, with often no participation in their economic upside. That's something that Hydro-Quebec is looking to change. They recently set up a facility that will be co-owned with local indigenous communities. So there are 11 indigenous nations, and you can see them um, differently. The symbols are different across the map, gives you some perspective as to where they are. Uh, 55 communities, it's about 1% of Quebec's population. And um, so we speak to these communities every day. We have um, an entire unit devoted to our relationships with Indigenous communities. And um, over the past decades, we've signed approximately 50 agreements with Five Nations. Um, and obviously, these are extremely significant agreements based on um, their values and cultures. Um, and we uh, seek to have social acceptability of our facilities throughout their our service lives. And so um, the, the principles for our practices and our agreements are to develop sustainable, mutually beneficial benef partnerships with the communities and nations. Uh, we wanna make sure that they have long-term uh, benefits from any new project in their communities. And, um, and they're involved from the very initial stages of the project. We don't simply inform them, we involve them in, um, it's either environmental um, impact assessments, studies, social impact assessments, a variety of ways of involving them and making sure that they, we hear them as to ways to improve their involvement. For the New York project, you know, that we are looking to have a transmission line. Uh, built in New York. Uh, we're in that process right now. And for the first time, um, we have partnered with an Indigenous community in Quebec, and they will be co-owners um, of the Quebec portion of the line that would bring the energy to New York. I can get to that a little bit later. Is, are they also, uh, as co-owners, are they co-operating? Is it co-governance? Uh, or is it, is it more co-ownership from uh, you know sharing revenues and, and upside? It's a revenue sharing. Uh, they'll okay. be involved, obviously, just as other communities um, can be involved in, in various projects, but it, it is a co-ownership and co-sharing of the revenues. It's worth noting, however, that revenue sharing is different than governance sharing. This facility is still very much controlled decision-making-wise by Hydro-Quebec, but it's still a step forward when compared to what has been done historically. Becky from the Sierra Club also shared with me a virtual talk from a man by the name of Roger Wheeler who is quite outspoken himself against megadams. There are some very valid claims in that talk against megadams, such as how a large hydropower facility on the Manicougan River has fundamentally altered its peak flows, which can have a cascading negative impact on biodiversity. Disrupting river flows are a big issue. It can forever alter ecosystems and stir up a lot of problems. One such area is the negative impact they've been studied to have on diatoms. Now, diatoms are a type of algae that serve really vital roles. They convert carbon dioxide in the water to oxygen, and they also serve as a foundation of the food chain. Here's Becky again from the Sierra Club. There are, as I said, two-thirds of the world's rivers are, are dammed right now. Mm. So, and two-thirds, and they take the diatoms right out of the water. The spring freshet brings diatoms down, which feeds a phytoplankton, which feeds everything else, the sprat, everything else. It's, you know, the diet, the dams 
were that when they started building the dams on the rivers, you know, providing it, providing water into the St. Lawrence, that's exactly, you know, a few years later was the cod die off. We're not going to look at that. Now, in going through Roger Wheeler's talk, there are some claims that I could easily validate with other scientists or peer-reviewed work publicly, such as what you just heard on diatoms. But then there are also some claims that I found a little more skeptical. A key point made by Roger Wheeler is how dams in the Arctic region, such as some of those from Hydro-Quebec and the Northern Quebec area, are contributing significantly to Arctic melting. So I followed up on this topic with two different Arctic scientists, one of which was a guest on an earlier podcast episode that outlined a novel approach to slowing down Arctic ice melt. And both of them did not validate this claim. They said there may be some impact in theory, but it has not been measured in detail with any sort of scientific consensus. And even if there was some validation here, it would pale in comparison to what global warming is doing in terms of melting the Arctic. This is why these topics and the questions that flow from them, such as just how damaging are Hydro-Quebec's hydro dams to the environment, are so hard to accurately understand in a world of social media headlines and reactions. One really needs to critically study this phenomenon. I've only scratched the surface and I can't really tell you anything concrete, only that broadly speaking, mega dams can cause a great deal of environmental harm. But there are many factors that drive the exact impact per dam. And Hydro-Quebec's dams do seem to be less damaging than those in warmer, lower elevation waters based on scientific consensus. That said, even many of those who supported the NECC admit that they would like to no longer see these large dams built going forward. They believe existing dams should be utilized as an alternative to fossil fuels, especially since their greenhouse gas emissions decrease over time, but we should be avoiding building new ones and instead investing in things like solar, wind, and nuclear. Hydroelectric dams are problematic. I'm not up here advocating, or I wouldn't necessarily advocate for the construction of new hydroelectric dams anywhere you know, necessarily without taking a really hard look at it. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about existing dams that are providing power, that are generating more power than Quebec can use. And why would we not take advantage of that greenhouse gas-free generation um, in our grid when we need all of the clean energy we can get? Which brings us to the final talking point on Hydro-Quebec's dams. Does this project necessitate building new ones or not? Hydro-Quebec has been adamant that no new dams are needed to fulfill this contract or a plan for the company. These large dams can take 10 to 15 years to build, and there are a couple in construction still coming online, but according to Lynn, going forward, nothing new is planned. It is correct that there's no new dams or facilities that are part of the NECC contract. Uh, HQ Hydro-Quebec has no plans um, to build new hydropower generating infrastructure in the foreseeable future for, for any project or contract. And, um, and to be, just to cut, sorry to cut you off, but to be clear too, just for listeners, I believe the timeline of setting up new dams and reservoirs is 10, 15 years. So it wouldn't even actually matter. Like there would be no possible way, correct me if I'm wrong, to build a new structure in time to supply energy for this quarter anyway. Exactly. So it doesn't take two to five years uh, like it would take, for instance, for a wind farm um, to get designed and built. It takes 10 to 15 years um, to build our facilities. So <laughs> it seems like there's a bit of an unfair standard to say the only way for Quebec hydropower to be an acceptable source for this power line is if the energy comes from 
a series of unused or dormant facilities. It doesn't make sense for this technology, this technology that be that can be so supportive in decarbonization efforts. Now, these facilities take time to build. You mentioned cost hundreds of millions of dollars to design and build. So we're not going to design and build one, keep it dormant, unused, um, where and, and then just wait for an opportunity to have that facility provide the power. So we need to plan ahead. We need to forecast expected increases in clean energy demand and prepare for generation additions accordingly. So our hydropower, and I think we covered this on our last call, our hydropower build out is done um, or will be done when the last unit of our generation build out will come online um, this year. So we will have added 5,000 megawatts of generating capacity in recent years. 5,000 megawatts, that's a little over four times the capacity needed for a power line like the NECC. What Lynn is saying here is that they are able to increase the output from existing dams via increased storage and turbine upgrades. This is Hydro-Quebec's answer to the claim that there is no net new hydroelectricity being generated that it is just a redirect of existing hydropower that could then get backfilled with fossil fuel power for those losing it. This is the primary argument against the NECEC from Nick Bennett from the NRCM, who does not buy Hydro-Quebec's explanation on increased storage capacity. And there's a reason why dams spill. And that's because dams are built to take advantage of flows at some sort of median or average level. You don't build dams to take advantage of maximum flows because maximum flows occur at a very small percentage of the time during the year. So if you build uh, uh, your generation capacity to take advantage of flows that occur 10 days of the year, you build a generation capacity, which a large part of it won't, won't be used for most of the year. So nobody does that. And that means you have to either store or spill. And the same argument for median estimate of river flows that you build your generation capacity for applies to storage capacity. You don't build storage capacity to hold water um, in, you know, the, the year in, in the wettest year out of 100 years, right? Because then 99 years of the time, you're not using that storage capacity that was expensive to build and you've wasted your money. So, you know, there's gonna be time when Hydro-Quebec spills water as with every other dam and every other reservoir. And they have provided no evidence that they can actually take advantage of that spillage either through, through increased generation or increased storage. But one of the things that's clear from evidence that was submitted by other parties in this is that they are not transmission limited. Another counter argument to Nick's claim was presented by Thorne Dickinson, CEO of the NECEC. When I looked at all this hydro coming on and all their sales in there, we saw a slow increase in the total amount of reservoirs across Quebec. And by the time I um, submitted my study um, in, in the record in the Public Utility Commission case, um, it, it, it was clear to me that something was happening and that I would expect that they would probably have to spill water because the, the reservoirs were just growing so much in size. And within a few months after that, 
Hydro-Quebec announced to their own um, people in Quebec that they actually spilled about $500 million worth of water um, that they couldn't get economically out of the region. So that I, to me, it's very clear and it's gonna change year to year based on the water and stuff, but on an average basis, if they can't build no transmission, I am absolutely convinced they're gonna have to spill water, um, water that could have run through the turbines and displaced oil and natural gas. But let's say that wasn't the case, right? And let's say that we don't, we don't believe this fact that it takes time and whether something is called incremental was a point that you made. If you look at the jurisdictions that Quebec surrounds Quebec, New England, New York, Ontario, and the Brunswick, these are all places with extremely um, rigid and strong goals for reducing carbon emissions. So if there was a sale that went into one of these jurisdictions and that's what's drawn, those other regions are gonna now have to invest in their own clean energy programs to do it. Nick, however, as do others who oppose the project, feel there was not enough formal evidence provided about the specifics of the new capacity that would be generated from existing facilities. The only evidence that was submitted in the main uh, hearing about new capacity was some existing turbine modifications and maybe additions that were proposed prior to this whole thing ever having been started. And so they're not additional. Those are things Hydro-Quebec was gonna do regardless of whether this project happened or not, or not to. Because if you look at the sheet and Conservation Law Foundation, who very interestingly flipped sides on Hydro-Quebec uh, during this whole fight, um, they, they opposed Northern Pass and supported the main power line, which doesn't make any sense. Um, but they gave this, this sheet of the only evidence of upgrades of capacity or generation capacity um, that came into the whole main proceeding came from CLF, not from Hydro-Quebec. And it was just a list of possible projects where Hydro-Quebec might do upgrades. And then if you look, that list went back like 20 years and there are all kinds of places in the list where it said project dropped or project abandoned. And I, I guess I probably didn't send you that list, but I'm happy to. Now, the NECC and NRCM have stood their grounds on their respective positions here on the issue of storage versus spillage. In fact, Nick and Thorne had a live debate on Maine Public Radio, and it didn't seem like anything really changed coming out of it. They were sort of talking at each other more than talking with each other in a way. It is impossible for me to sit here and tell you who is right and wrong on this issue. Hydro-Quebec has invited me to visit the facilities and see for myself. And if I had the time and money to do so, I absolutely would. It is very much possible that Hydro-Quebec is absolutely able to adequately increase output from existing facilities to support this contract. It is also possible that they may be redirecting some energy from one buyer to another. However, even in the case of redirection, even if that were true, one would have to go a level deeper to know for certain how that existing customer's energy needs are getting backfilled and what the footprint of that backfill is compared to the fossil fuel energy the NECEC would be displacing in the New England grid. I don't have the answer to all those questions. But to sum up this section of the environmental and social impacts of hydro dams, it is important that we always measure the full and complete life cycle assessment of any energy source and do so specifically to where that energy is being generated and how it is being transported, as Ben Dudley points out in his defense of the project. I see the opportunity uh, 
for, for uh, replacement of base load generation in New England. The opportunity for us is, is hydropower generated uh, by our neighbors in Quebec. I mean, it, it's, it's not the right solution around the globe, but here it makes a lot of sense for a number of reasons, you know, like, like I just said, the first being that it's generated right across our border. Um, uh, and by, by a, a company that is situated in, the, in a country that is our, probably our number one trading partner, you know, we have a, an incredibly close and uh, alliance and uh, relationship with the nation of Canada. Um, but on top of that, it's a, it, given the climate of, of Northern Quebec where so much of this electricity is generated, developing hydroelectricity there is different than say, if you're developing it in, uh, in uh, a rainforest. Um, the, um, the, the vegetation is more spare there. And so the, uh, when there's decomposition of vegetation from the flooding of a reservoir in this part of the world, the resulting uh, um, greenhouse gas emissions that, that occur only in the initial years are much lower than you would see in another part of the world. Uh, in fact, the, the, um, the record in uh, peer-reviewed scientific journals specific to uh, uh, the impact of reservoirs developed in Quebec uh, demonstrate this, that, that, it, that there is an increase in uh, CO2 emissions, greenhouse gas emissions in the, in the very initial years of reservoir flooding. But very soon, soon after that, they level out. And uh, when you do a life cycle analysis, comparing an apples to apples comparison of hydroelectricity developed in Quebec with uh, wind and solar, you find that they have very similar um, uh, CO2 footprints. So for, as a solution for this part of the world, uh, Quebecois um, hydroelectricity makes a lot of sense. Okay, so then we have the transmission line. The second and for some, the primary part of the environmental impact story of the NECEC. It was 153 miles in total that would need to move electricity from Quebec to Lewinsing, Maine, where it would then get moved into the New England grid. 100 of those miles would utilize existing transmission corridor. 53 of those miles needed a new one. The original plans called for a 150 foot wide corridor to be built through Maine's contiguous forests in the northern part of the state. In total, Roughly 1,000 square acres of forest would need to be cleared in support of this project. Still, just because the total footprint of the new corridor is relatively small compared to the size of the forest, what well, doesn't mean that there's no possibility for larger impacts to come from it over time. And even though 1,000 acres doesn't sound like a lot of land, it's still, it's, you know, it's 150 feet smack dab in the middle of very contiguous forests and edge effects of a, something like this are going to be severe. We don't need peer reviewed, you know, uh, research that's totally specific to this project to say that we had expert testimony from people who are objective, who could say, this is going to be a really damaging project. Some of the messaging from those who oppose the NECEC kind of frame this transmission line as a quote, an extension cord running through Maine's forests. This was designed to elicit a visceral emotional response from the public. If you tell someone in Maine that there's an exchange between Canada and Massachusetts, and in order to make it happen, they're going to tear down some of Maine's forest, well, that is understandably going to raise some questions. And to be fair from those behind that message, 
Rather biased, one-sided frameworks were also used by those pushing the project forward. This was done as tactic on both ends. Those behind the project tried to minimize conversations on local environment impact outside of the agency review process, focusing more on the global environmental benefits from furthering the transition on fossil fuels. However, it's perfectly understandable that any local Mainer would want to ask questions about how this is impacting their state and their forest in particular. As a reminder, we mentioned in episode one that the forest in Northern Maine is far from an untouched old growth forest. It has been commercialized for decades by the timber and biomass industries, albeit with stricter and stricter protocols in recent years. Here's Nick Bennett again from the NRCM. So these forests are definitely not untouched. They're there, there are a lot of areas that have been cut. Maine has very little, what, or maybe even none of what you're, you're in. I can't remember whether you're in Washington or Oregon. 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 So what you guys would call old, old growth forest, we don't have anything like that or very, very little of it. Um, because most of Maine is privately owned. We have the lowest percentage of, of uh, public land in the country. And, and our great outdoors is largely owned by private landowners and they cut land, they cut wood. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's still a rich forest, you know, and um, so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it, it, it's important to make clear because, you know, one of the arguments that CMP tried to use against all of us is that we have, we're, we're city slickers and we don't really know what the woods are like. And that's baloney. We know what these woods are like. I've spent a lot of time in these woods hunting. Um, and, you know, I know it's a, it's a mixed forest in terms of some older growth, a lot of very immature forest, but it's still filled with wildlife and it's still big enough to provide shade to trout streams. And so where this, this, um, forest, this corridor would go, would would be right through a whole bunch of some of the best trout habitat in the state and the best brook trout habitat that's left in the country. Um, so just just uh, I guess you know and, and flipping to biomass, and we've also done a, a major study of this. NRCM's position is basically that if you're going to do biomass, you should not do standalone electricity generation. Um, Maine has two biomass standalone electricity plants. We don't think that's an efficient way to use wood. Um, biomass should either be for heating or for combined heat and power. Just because there are not old growth forests does not mean they don't warrant fierce protection. A recent study actually came out showing that if we focus too much conservation efforts only on remaining old growth forests, we will fail to come anywhere close to our goals of preventing even more catastrophic biodiversity collapse. However, it is a reminder that this is a working forest, and one could put an argument forward that a transmission line to move hydropower is more environmentally friendly than cutting and burning trees for biomass. The details matter here, and these things need to be evaluated project by project. We don't want to make this a redactive argument between biomass and hydropower more broadly. One chief concern that you heard from Nick, which came up in every chat I had with those who oppose this project, was the impact on brook trout. Now, brook trout are a critical species of fish that have been in decline, primarily due to habitat loss and toxic runoffs in our water systems. Brook trout rely on cold, very clean freshwater to survive and reproduce. They also serve as a preferred recreation and food source for main fishing and dining. Furthermore, 
They are key predators and serve the critical predator-prey balance, as well as serve as indicator species, since they require such clean ecological conditions to survive. In short, brook trout are important. Many manors love and cherish brook trout, and understandably so. Any perceived threat to them is going to be met with resistance. Here's Sandra Howard. Um, it's home of the last stronghold for native brook trout. And so when you remove tree canopy that is covering shallow cold waters, those waters heat up and the brook trout can't survive in that. So about 95% of the native brook trout in the country are in this region of Maine. This was brought up as well by Becky from the Sierra Club. We have the only brook, the only native brook trout habitat. All the rest of it, all the rest of the brook trout are, you know, are developed in uh, fish, fish hatcheries and then released. So we have a, we had a native brook trout that require cool streams, you know, for their environment. They re require the eggs to be in cooler streams. You open up those streams to sunlight and you change you change the temperature. So forget all the other damage that's happening. You change the temperature. Um, so, so the is there um, are there any models around the, the the temperature change that would come from this corridor in terms of like the 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 number of of how much warmer those streams would get? I'm sure that I can get that from Jeff Reardon. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just asking if, if you know that Jeff was... Reardon. So I mean, he's the trout person. He can tell you exactly. Okay. You know, yeah. Um, uh, I don't have that. I can ask him. Um, you know, uh, he's you know he's gonna he's one of our um, uh, he's gonna testify in our behalf when we go before the the judge if we as and when we do. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I'll have that fact. Um, and if I do dove into all the testimony, I'm sure it's there in the testimony. Um, you know, um, but uh, it you don't it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that when you have a bowl of water in the shade, it stays cooler than when you put the bowl of water, which is dark tannin water out into the sun, it dramatically changes temperature. You know, and a running stream running through is going to, it's going to change the temperature. If you've got a 300 foot wide corridor or even 150 foot wide corridor, that's out in the sun a long time, especially after the spring freshet, after this, you know, when in later in the season, when the, when the eggs would be hatching. Now, Becky's clip here highlights both the primary case for brook trout concern, as well as the difficulty in assessing the weight of those concerns. There are several spots where this corridor would cross streams. Removing a tree canopy over a stream crossing, which would need to be done in order to safely install the power lines, does expose that stream to more sunlight and thus more heat. That is pretty straightforward. What is not so straightforward is defining exactly how much additional heat and temperature increase these spots of exposure would cause. Since at each spot where a stream crosses, well, it's only 75 to 100 feet wide of additional sun exposure. That is why I asked Becky if that data was out there and I was not able to track it down. What I'm referring to specifically is a model on the exact temperature increase in main streams that this corridor would cause. Without that specific number, it does not mean this issue is not real. It's just difficult to fully evaluate. So if you are someone who also has other reasons to oppose a project, for example, you distrust central main power, well, the chance of negative impact on brook trout habitats would subconsciously feel more likely. Likewise, if you're one who has other reasons to support it, 
Say, for example, you're someone who really believes in the clean energy of hydropower. Well, the chance of negative impact on brook trout would subconsciously feel less likely. Or if you lean more pure environmentalist versus a clean energy advocate, this could also influence your stance on such a topic. This is how that differing foundational starting point can factor into play, despite both sides being very dedicated to saving this planet more generally speaking. Ben Dudley pointed out that amongst the mitigation efforts made by the NECEC after the initial proposal was first approved, they included efforts to try and further minimize brook trout impact. The report goes into exhaustive detail about um, environmental impacts and, and, and the DP was tasked with determining what were sort of reasonable impacts in light of the, 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 the purpose of the project. And, um, and they spoke specifically and at length about things like trout streams that, that, that I think you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And they uh, required uh, absolutely appropriate mitigation uh, on impacts of these trout streams. Uh, and not to go into too much detail, but for around trout streams, they require buffer zones um, where vegetation must be left in place uh, uh, in zones of, of 75 to 100, 100 feet away from these trout streams, whether they're perennial trout streams or whether they're you know you know year-round standing trout streams, and this that that condition that was placed in the permit directly reflects the best science offered uh, uh, about how to protect trout streams from development. Now you might be asking why such emphasis on brook trout. Well, that's because it was a focal point for the opposition. In fact, the most popular signage and protests against the project came in the form of a cardboard cutout of a brook trout itself. Still, brook trout was not the only potential negative impact of this new transmission corridor. There are risks to migratory patterns for terrestrial animals, alterations to the riparian ecosystem, and impacts on local hunting, fishing, and tourism industries. What's important, though, is to carefully model these impacts and match them against the potential benefits of more renewable energy into our power system. For opposition such as the NRCM, well, that exact calculation on the potential negative impacts doesn't really matter since they don't see any net benefits. For folks like the NECEC and Hydro-Quebec, they relied on governing bodies such as the Maine Department of Environmental Protection and the Conservation Law Foundation to do that analysis and make their decision. And they decided to move forward with it. The extent of regulatory review um, for the NECEC has been you know, uh, it's been a detailed independent review process and a multi-layered one where this project was reviewed by agencies in Maine, as well as at the federal level. Um, and in terms of, of the waterways, the Army Corps of Engineers is mandated for that specific um, review process. Um, and the Maine Department of Environmental Protection also looked at this. And um, given the fact that this independent, rigorous, multi-layered process led to the project um, getting the green light at every step of the way, um, I feel confident that the pros and cons were appropriately weighed um, and that any impact uh, was assessed, evaluated, um, and, and mitigated to whatever, and, and mitigated, and therefore, um, um, I think that the outcome of those processes were that the benefits of this project significantly outweigh its impacts. Many who opposed it believed that that DEP regulatory analysis was not thorough enough. 
narrowly examined the corridor. They did not look at any impacts to the side. They were only looking at literally the stream crossing. They refused to look at the temperature differences. They refused to look at upland impacts. They refused to look at anything other than actually crossing the streams. And, and the Army Corps of Engineers worked, CMP wrote the Army Corps of Engineers project. And we're, we are right now in a lawsuit separate from NRCM and, and AMC, Sierra Club is on the 8th of April, um, is going to go before a judge, you know, saying that we need to see what the, um, what the uh, preliminary analyses were and the, and, the, and the backroom discussions because, um, and that's been redacted from all of the FOIA work that we did. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that we have, you know, the Army Corps, you know, under the uh, last president um, and the EPA under the last president really took the, um, the lid off on terms of development. And, you know, there was a great heave of a sigh of relief on the part of big business to see what they could get done. And, um, you know, they went for broke. And it's uh, frankly that, you know, trying to hold them accountable, holding the Army Corps of Engineers accountable when the guy here in Maine, who's now recently retired, you know, said, we don't like to have public hearings. We don't, you know, we, you know, tough luck. You're, you know, you're employed by us. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, that I think that if we had greater citizen oversight and that is, you know, and engaging citizenry on this kind of thing is extremely important. And democracy is not something that happens overnight. It is a muddy, you know, process. In the end, a number of concessions were made by the NECEC to try and minimize the environmental footprint of the corridor itself. Even though we're only impacting about a thousand acres, we, we have to put 40,000 acres into permanent protection. Um, and uh, we have programs for um, uh, fisheries that, uh, streams that have, have had collapsed uh, um, culverts across roads that we're restoring to allow fish to move across them. Um, and a, a number of other programs to protect the species uh, that are up in that area. The NRCM, the Appalachian Mountain Club, and Trout Unlimited joined forces in writing a draft response to the main DEP site law permit, where these efforts from the NECEC were called into question. Nick actually sent that directly to me, and they do provide a very clear and detailed rebuttal to the concessions made by the NECEC. They found efforts to taper the corridor and tier vegetation height unsatisfactory compared to what the repair and ecosystem needs to thrive. They found that some of the sites for further brook trout protection came in warmer, larger river areas that don't need the protection as much as colder, higher elevation streams. They cited forest fragmentation issues, even if the tapered vegetation height was properly executed and maintained. And they gave reasons to doubt if that maintenance would even happen in the first place. My point here is that there are very valid reasons to be concerned about the corridor's impact on Maine's forest ecosystem. Perhaps the NECC could have owned and called out these concerns early on and focus their narrative more on validating them and showing the math on how compared to the upsides of the fossil fuel displacement coming from the project. My point here being, there are very valid reasons to be concerned about the corridor's impact on Maine's forests. Perhaps the NECEC could have owned and called out these concerns early on and focus their narrative more on validating them and showing the math on how compared to the upsides of the fossil fuel displacement coming from the project, they believe the pros outweigh the cons. However, they were often on the defensive when it came to any negative environmental impacts, with a focus more on mitigating these concerns versus validating them. 
Now, it's easy for me to say that here, sitting here after the fact, but the way the communication strategy played out, it created an opportunity for environmental activists to stand up against a renewable energy project. Finally, it's also worth noting that there was some discussion around alternative ways to move the energy from Canada to Lewiston without needing to cut through the forest in this way. One popular theory from the opposition urged the NECEC to build the transmission line underground instead of above ground. Nick from the NRCM felt that the path chosen from the NECEC was primarily for cost reasons. This is the cheapest possible way that they could do this. Mm. Um, that's why this project got um, chosen by Massachusetts is because Maine was the cheapest date um, to connect Hydro-Quebec to Massachusetts among the other states. Even so, they went with New Hampshire first, which I'm not entirely sure why, although I expect it has to do with lobbying from Eversource, which was the, the utility that stood to benefit from that, pro stood to benefit from that project. Um, but uh, Maine was by far the cheapest date and um, CMP and Hydro-Quebec have made abundantly clear that they were gonna do this project the cheapest way possible. Now I asked Thorne, the architect of this project, the same question on underground versus above ground. And here's what his response was. Thorough public vetting of that issue came a little later on uh, at the Department of Environmental Protection. They spent a full week looking at alternatives, including underground. And if you could imagine the, we have an existing corridor that already has a transmission line adding 75 feet and putting another line next to it. The major issue was for the new part of the corridor, should that go overhead or underground? In the end, we believe that the, and ultimately the Department of Environmental Protection agreed in their order that going overhead allows you to avoid areas in a way that you can if you're going to do underground. So um, we can place the poles in places to minimize impact on streams. Um, we can um, avoid areas. We can make them higher and allow full vegetation to grow so that you wouldn't even know a line was there in certain places. With an underground, you're still going to have a cleared corridor, um, 75 foot wide, and it's going to dig through all of these areas. All the streams, all the wetlands, all the grown-up pools are all going to be dug up, um, not just slow locations where you're sticking the pole. In the end, that was the conclusion of the DEP was that the environmental impact with it going underground was, uh, was higher than an, an, an overhead. I will say... I did find it quite confusing on why there was so much animosity towards the corridor, yet seemingly very little towards the biomass and timber industries that have been tearing into the forest and giving off toxic byproducts for decades. Now, the footprint they leave is not exactly the same as clearing a transmission corridor. There are some unique challenges and trade-offs for each, yet all three have negative environmental trade-offs. So does it boil down to more of a personal preference on which of the three one is more comfortable with? Is there room for all three while maintaining biodiversity levels we need? Can we ever agree on a scientific analysis that makes the decision for us? Well, here's Anthony Moffa again. With respect to the main forest, the, the, the North Woods, like the contiguous forest scape, if you will, that is being disrupted, you know, this disruption is relatively minor when you look at the overall size of the forest. Um, and it's like a thousand like, square, square acres, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, if you think about that, just in terms of the historical uses of Maine's forests, it looks less problematic, let's say. And, and not, that's not to say that, you know, the timbering of Maine's forests aren't them, hasn't been a his, 
problem historically, but there has been timbering, right? And that is, it's a little bit rich now to say that cutting down these trees to provide renewable energy, all of a sudden we have problems with cutting down trees when, you know, Maine's paper industry is, was the primary industry in this state, you know, during the 20th century, it depended largely on cutting down the trees throughout our state. And, you know, that kind of steamed right along and caused many other problems, you know, beyond just cutting down trees. In the end, the environmental concerns over this project, both concerns over large hydro dams and the new transmission corridor, was a driving force behind the project ultimately getting voted down in the public referendum in November of 2021. This despite the project getting approved by the proper environmental regulatory agencies and several concessions from the NECC being granted along the way. I mean, there don't take my word for it in terms of how this power line will lead to um, deliveries that will bring down carbon emissions. There exists a robust public record totally. derived from layers of state and federal regulatory review experts who, who look at this and in, in, um, from the Maine Public Utilities Commission, from the Department of Environmental Protection, the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities um, looked at the contracts, at the way they were structured to make sure that they were designed in a way to meet the decarbonization of objectives, the, the Federal Department of Energy. And these, James, these agencies are answerable to no interest, but that of the public. And, and they spent years reviewing these permit applications through processes that did take to, into account uh, input from everyone, including from opposing parties. So it's, I, I, I'm sorry, but I kind of think that when opposition groups say, well, it's a black box, I'm sorry, but there was 33 months of review, a process that takes into account everyone's point of view, analyzed by experts and come to the conclusion that um, when this capacity is delivered to New England, it's global. It's not substituted to other ties. That means there's a greenhouse gas reduction. If going forward, we're not able to put our trust into these agencies and their processes, we're left to evaluate in the court of public opinion. Now that can be good and bad since agencies and government officials can be biased and lobbied, but the public can be making decisions on fragmented or misinformation. Now with this specific project, I don't expect you to be able to precisely figure out if the environmental costs outweigh the clean energy benefits or vice versa. I know I'm not able to do that despite spending dozens and dozens of hours researching the story. That, however, is not the point I wish to raise. We need to be keenly aware when this sort of environmental activism butts heads with clean energy advocacy, because it's starting to happen within the larger world of addressing our climate and biodiversity crises. In the ideal scenario, these broadly aligned but opposing approaches can fill each other's blind spots and help us make more informed decisions on what renewable energy projects to push forward and which ones to hold back. However, there's also a concerning possibility that these opposing groups keep a majority of renewable energy projects stalled, and we remain on the status quo of burning coal and natural gas to produce our electricity. We need large-scale renewable generation if we're going to get off fossil fuels. That likely should be a combination of wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, and nuclear, since each of those has negative drawbacks. And until they're solved, well, we don't want to put all of our eggs in any one renewable basket. The courts in Maine will decide if this project in particular should move forward or not. And you, the listener, can decide for yourself. That said, going forward, 
Whether you are someone who leans more towards stricter environmental protections or one who leans more towards accelerating the renewable energy transition and accepting the environmental trade-offs that may come with it, recognize where you are on that spectrum and take the time and effort to listen and engage with those who lean the other way. If you surround yourself with people who only reinforce your worldview, well, you will find it increasingly difficult to evaluate complex projects such as the NECEC. And everything that's needed to transition off fossil fuels is very, very complex. All right, well, that's it for episode two. Stay tuned for episode three, where we're going to jump into discussing this new world order where the most critical renewable energy projects are being evaluated at the local level, not the national level, and why decisions are shifting away from traditional regulatory processes and towards public analysis, as it did here in Maine. Thank you, as always, for your support for our work here at Animalia. And thank you for doing your part in protecting this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life that calls it home.